Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now when I last spoke, we considered the first part of Romans chapter 1 and spent considerable time looking at that first sentence which I've just read. However, one particular point made by Paul, I skipped over and didn't consider at any depth. And it concerns his emphasis on Jesus being born of the seed of David. And when we studied 2 Timothy, and Paul reminded Timothy of the gospel, he said, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. And we again... Uh, did not spend any time exploring the significance that Jesus is of the seed of David. So by way of attempting in, uh, to go some way at least, even just a small way, to redress that balance, it's been on my heart to consider something of the significance of this, to give us a more full understanding of Jesus before, God willing, we go further into Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, now no doubt you will have noticed... And, and probably wondered why in our Bibles there are so many genealogies. Now probably the most important reason is to understand exactly who Jesus is. See, the genealogies of Jesus established that Jesus is a descendant of Adam. And indeed, so are we all. And if this were not so, Jesus could not be our Redeemer, since it's a well-established biblical fact that people can only be redeemed by a kinsman. Now this is another reminder that we need to understand that Genesis is, the book of Genesis is historical fact. Now the gene genealogies also establish that Jesus is of the seed of David. In the Gospel accounts there are two, one in Luke and one in, in Matthew. And you will no doubt have noticed that they're not the same. Now the reason being is one is the genealogy of Joseph, Jesus adopted and therefore legal father, See, as the incarnate Son of God, Jesus had no human father, but Joseph was his legal father, a descendant of David. The other genealogy is, is Mary's. See, Jesus was born of the seed of the woman. So Jesus was physically descended from David, since Mary was one of David's physical descendants. So Jesus is both legally and physically of the seed of David. Now, one of the things that Paul pointed out in that amazing first sentence in his letter to the Romans is that God, the creator of heaven and earth, makes and keeps his promises. And when David was king in Israel, he had the desire in his heart to build a great temple for God to dwell in. Now, God did not permit David to build that temple, but he did make, that, uh, but he did make a promise to David, in which we can read about in two places, one in... 1 Chronicles and 1 in 2 Samuels. And rather than just looking these up, all the references are in the notes which you can consider uh, later on. But just reading from uh, 1 Chronicles 17, it says, And it shall be, when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son, and I will not take my mercy away from him, as I took it away from him who was before you. 
and I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be forever. Now for this reason, Jews and Christians believe that when the Messiah comes, he will rule and reign in Jerusalem and establish worldwide peace on earth. Just reading those uh, verses I'm sure you know well from the book of Isaiah. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. And neither shall they learn war any more. Now where Jews, that is Jews who don't believe in Jesus, and Christians differ, is as to the identity of the Messiah. See, as Christians we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is indeed the promise the angel gave to Mary prior to his conception. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and called a, called Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him his throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there, will be, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, unbelieving Jews contend that Jesus could not be the Messiah since he did not fulfil those promises to rule and reign and establish peace that we've just read in Isaiah. However, as Christians, we understand that he first had to come and die for our sin in order for us to enter that, his kingdom. And that the, prom the prophecy we just read in Isaiah and many others besides will only be fulfilled at his second coming. Now, whenever we consider the second coming of Christ, we inevitably have hundreds of questions that we want answered. And as a teacher, when introducing a new topic of study, I found that it's beneficial to begin by asking basic questions like how, what, why, and when. Sadly though, often when the second coming is considered, people tend to become preoccupied and stuck with the question of when. And I say sadly because Jesus himself told his disciples not to concern themselves with when, he said to his disciples, uh, the disciples asked him the question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. See, it's a question we don't need to know the answer to, because Jesus has told us how to be ready for his return. Did he not say that those who are faithfully tending the master's house will not be caught unawares upon his return? In other words, faithfully get on with what he has given us to do. The Lord is looking for consistency in his people. However, the scriptures do give us many answers to those other questions. And today, let's consider something of what the scripture says concerning the world, what the world would be like when he comes. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 32, and we're going to read through Isaiah 32 and 33. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. And princes will rule with justice. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest. 
as, river, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. The eyes of those who see will not be dim, and the ears of those who hear will listen, and the heart of the rash will understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. The foolish person will no longer be called generous, nor the miser said to be bountiful. For the foolish person speaks foolishness, and his heart will work iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Also the schemes of the schemer are evil. He devises wicked plans to destroy the poor with lying words. Even when the needy speaks justice, but a, gen but a generous man devises generous things, and by generosity he, will, he shall stand. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In a year and some days you will be troubled, you complacent women, for the vintage will fail. The gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent ones. Strip yourselves, make yourselves bare, and gird sackcloth to your waists. People shall mourn upon their breasts. For the pleasant field, for the fruitful vine. On the land of my people will come up thorns and briars. Yes, on all the happy homes in the joyous city. Because the palaces will be forsaken. The bustling city will be deserted. The forts and towers will become lairs forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness, righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of the righteous will be peace, and the effect of righteousness will be quietness and assurance forever. My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. Though hail comes down on the forest and the city is brought low in humiliation, blessed are you who sow beside all waters, who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. Woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered, and you who deal treacherously Though you have not dealt, uh, dealt though, though they have not dealt treacherously with you, when you cease plundering, you will be plundered. When you make an end of dealing treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning. Our salvation also in the time of trouble. At the noise of the tumult, the people shall flee. When you lift yourself up, the nations shall be scattered, and your plunder shall be gathered, like the gathering of the caterpillar, as the running to and fro of locusts, he shall run, run upon them. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has, he has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Surely their valiant ones shall cry outside. The, ambas the ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. The highways lay waste. The travelling man ceases. 
He has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He regards no man. The earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is shamed and shriveled. Sharon is like a wilderness. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. You shall conceive shaft. You shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you. And the people shall be like the burnings of lime, like thorns cut up when they are burned in the fire. Hear, you who are far off, what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks up, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain of oppressions. He who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes. Who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. He will dwell on high. His place of defence will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? You will not see a fierce people, a people of obscure speech beyond perception, of stammering tongue that you cannot understand. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor any of its cords broken. But there, the majestic Lord will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams, in which no galley with oars will sail, nor majestic ships pass by. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Your tackle is loosed. They could not strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. Then the prey of great plunder is divided. The lame take the prey, and the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. For the people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. The passage begins, behold, pay attention. A king will reign in righteousness. Now this has to be Jesus. For in order to rule in righteousness, the king himself must be righteous. Among men there is none righteous. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the only human being who has ever lived on this earth as God fully intended. For this is what righteousness means. To live as God intended. Now Brian spoke last week of the need to love. To love God, to love our neighbours and brothers and sisters. uh, Not last week, uh, two weeks ago. Uh, To love our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, not only as we love ourselves, but as Christ himself loved us. Love is righteousness in action. I believe also that this is what God means by the word good. See, when we use the word good today, we have lost sight of its meaning. To us, it means somewhere in between satisfactory and outstanding. But good in the Bible means just as God intended. And when God created this world in six days, about 6,000 years ago, he declared on several occasions that it was good. And at the end of the sixth day, before he rested on the seventh, he declared it to be very good. In other words, 
just as he intended it to be. And when Jesus comes to reign as king, for the first time since the fall of Adam, this world will have a king, a ruler, and a government that will rule as God intended. Notice the king will not be alone. There will be princes who rule with justice. Now I don't want to speculate too much as to their identity, because the emphasis of the passage is more concerned with the effect of their rule than who they are. But I do think we can say the following about them. See, firstly, as princes, they are less than him in authority and person, and yet they are related to him. They are men, men who have been redeemed by him, in whom his spirit dwells, and have been adopted into his family. And we do know from his first visit that Jesus did appoint men from among his followers for special tasks. He appointed twelve apostles from the seventy, and chose three of them to accompany him to the mountain of transfiguration. These princes are godly men that Jesus has appointed to administer and exercise his government. So what will be the effect of his reign? As we read the passage, we get a sense of things being restored. Restored to how God originally intended. This, will, this world be, will become more like it once was before Adam sinned. Yes. Adam begins by describing the effect it will have on people. In agreement with Solomon who wrote, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, and when the wicked man rules, the people groan. Righteous government is a blessing to people, and Isaiah describes the effect as being like a refuge from the wind and a hiding place from the tempest. Righteous government will therefore bring protection, security and peace. He goes on to say that it will be like rivers or streams in a dry place or desert. It will therefore be a time of refreshing, of revitalising, new life, new birth. A time when living things grow and flourish. His supply of all we need to live will be abundant and plentiful. His rule will be as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. In other words, his rule will come as a great relief. Just as the relief is you feel when you find welcome shelter from, the sh from the, under the shade of a tree or from the shade of a rock on a blistering hot day. Now, without wanting to get too political, but since we are in an election year, we will no doubt be hearing many speeches from politicians, all promising to make life better, who promise growth and prosperity, who will promise to be a welcome relief from the lot that ruled before. But there are not many today who walk in the corridors of power in this land who are God's people. And therefore I see little sign of people rejoicing. But as the proverb states, when the wicked rule, the people will groan. However, this does not absolve us of our responsibility to pray for them. Verses 3 and 4 speak of a time of learning, revelation and enlightenment. Today we live in a world where there are people that although their eyes and ears work perfectly well, are blind to the truth about God and unwilling to listen to his word. In that, they do, in, in that day, though, they will not only hear the truth, they will see and understand God's ways and his purposes. They will know the truth that can set them free. People who make rash and hasty decisions, who without consideration or taking the time to reason, reject the word of God, they will finally understand. And the truth about God will be clear for all. No longer will there be people... Uh, with strange ideas, or 
no longer with people with strange ideas and strange philosophies and religions be called noble. For the truth about the one true God will be plain to all. As the prophet says, that at, the time, at this time the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Verses 5 to 8 are about who is truly noble and generous. Some translations will translate generous there as noble. See, God is a great teacher and he teaches us about a world we can barely imagine by relating it to our current experience. And God inspired Isaiah to begin verse 5 with the words, No longer will. And what Isaiah experienced in his day, and what we too experience, will no longer be true. As in Isaiah's day, and most certainly true today, the fool is considered noble, and the rogue is considered generous. But who is the fool? Now verse 6 describes the fool as the one who speaks nonsense, whose heart is inclined towards wickedness, those who practice ungodliness and speak error against the Lord. So who is the fool? Well, the Bible also says the fool is the one who does not believe in the one true God. A few years ago, I recall hearing about an atheist who during a trial complained to the judge that different religious groups had days on their calendar specially devoted to them and there was no special day for them. Now the judge corrected him by opening his Bible to Psalm 14 and read, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Now the man looked a little bemused, so the judge pointed out that April the 1st was indeed their very special day. <laughs> now I'm not suggesting that the world's ills can be laid at the feet of atheists, far from it. I think I've made perfectly clear on many occasions that our problems are the consequence of sin and it's a condition that affects the whole of mankind and we need to be saved from it. However, atheism and the evolutionary thinking that supports modern secular humanistic philosophy does have two effects that I particularly object to. Firstly, it gives people a means of rationalising their sin and secondly, it deliberately and willfully keeps people from the truth about God. See, in modern Britain today, the likes of Stephen Hawking, Richard Dawkins and David Attenborough are held in great esteem as noblemen. That is, men, to look, men that we look to for knowledge, wisdom and understanding. And the philosophy of our day is to look at Christians and say, surely you don't believe the Bible? Surely you don't believe the world was created perfect in six days? That God judged this sinful world by sending a worldwide flood that only Noah and those with him in the ark survived? Science has proved the Bible to be wrong. So today, many people will neither see nor listen to the truth. People no longer listen to the truth of the gospel. Because our modern secular humanistic society has done a very effective job of convincing us that uh, it would be committing intellectual suicide to do so. Now, not only does the atheist keep those who are hungry and thirsty from the word of God unsatisfied, but modern secular humanists are becoming increasingly aggressive to those who speak the truth, those who try to bring the good news of the gospel to this needy world. And we are increasingly seeing in today's society what Isaiah saw in his day when he wrote verses 7 and 8. Now, what I'm about to say, actually I did... Um, kind of ponder over, but so much has been said about eyesight this morning that I felt that I uh, led to say it. 
Many of you, no doubt, will have be aware of the, um, the rant by a person that many in this world consider to be a noble man. The, so the, 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 the comic actor and uh, television personality Stephen Fry. Um, during an interview this week, he was asked what he would say if he, was, uh, if he stood before God. And he proceeded to go into a rant in which he accused God for all the evils of this world. And one of the examples that he cited was, How can I love of God, who created a worm whose life cycle depends on it boring into the human eye, causing blindness? Now, where did he get that from? David Attenborough. See, I just want to give you a very brief science lesson, if I may. See, the thing, we, the thing is, when we look at the facts, facts uh, do an effective job at uh, spoiling or uh, dispelling popular myths and stories. If we consider that uh, worm that was spoken of, any study of science will tell you that this worm actually lives on the surface of flies. And these are flies that look upon humans as a source of nutrients. And these flies um, get into humans when they bite, when they bite them. And uh, when they get inside and the wound heals over, they can't get out. And when they can't get out, they reproduce and produce baby worms. And these worms are transported through the bloodstream and into the human eye. Now, when they're in the human eye, bacteria on their surface cause the eye to be inflamed and the jelly-like fluid that's inside the eye becomes solid and that's what causes blindness. The interesting thing is, is the effect it has on the worm, because the worm dies. Its life cycle comes to an end. So did God create a worm whose life cycle depends on it being able to bore into the human eye and cause blindness? No. The worm dies. Now, if you're going to make comments about uh, the creatures God's created, you should at least look at uh, what God has said about the creatures he created. And you'll find that in Genesis chapter 1. Because when you read Genesis chapter 1, you'll find that humans and animals alike were given a diet of fruit and veg. And that includes flies. See, in the world of Genesis chapter 1, the perfect world God created, animals didn't eat each other, and insects didn't bite humans. So in the perfect world that God created, could that worm have ever ended up in the eye of a human being. So who's to blame? Well, if we go on and read in the book of Genesis, we read about how Adam rebelled and how sin entered the world and death through sin and how God cursed the ground to no longer produce the fruit and veg in the same abundance or with the same nutri nutritional value that it originally had. And see, it's after that time that the animals and the flies began to feed on dead things, since death entered the world. And then, animals began to eat each other, and flies began to bite humans. So where does the fault lie? You see, I'm not against science. I'm for the right use of science. Science, when it seeks to understand the world and the universe God created, and give him the glory... 
and the likes of Hawkins, Dawkins and Attenborough, their approach to science, they begin with an assumption. They begin with an assumption that there is no God. And they only accept naturalistic explanations. And this results in wrong conclusions. And its effect is to keep the hungry and thirsty from hearing the word of God that satisfies. Now in the millennium, when Christ comes to rule, there will be fools, but they will no longer be considered noble. Verses 9 to 14 are a prophecy given by Isaiah that was pertinent to the people of his day. See, in those verses we read of a time reference. It says they would come into effect in a little over a year. And the prophecy was directed at complacent women and it, re and it warned that the abundant harvest that they had come to expect would fail, that the fields in which they sowed and reaped a harvest would be overgrown with thorns and briars, and that the cities and their fortresses and defences would become places inhabited by wild animals and wandering flocks. Now this prophecy was literally fulfilled in Isaiah's day. See, at the time the people of God were a divided nation, Israel and Judah. And at many times in their history, they abandoned the word of God and they did not seek to live according to his ways. And God sent nations to administer his judgment. And in that time, God allowed the mighty Assyrian Empire to invade and take over almost the entire land. In fact, only Jerusalem survived. A city besieged. And God in his mercy spared that city. No doubt in response to the prayers of Isaiah and the good king Hezekiah. And he sent an angel to defeat the entire Assyrian army of 186,000 fierce fighting warriors. However, the effect of that invasion would have left the land in the terrible state described in these verses. Now, we've said quite a bit in the past of uh, studying verses in context. And we need to recognise that this prophecy is juxtaposed between a description of the king reigning in righteousness in verses 1 to 8... And a description of the revival that comes when the Spirit is poured out in verses 15 to 20. So it does seem to suggest that Isaiah's prophecy was not only meant for his own day, but also for the days immediately preceding the return of the Lord. And I can't help but notice that these verses seem to be an apt description of the state of the church in our day. Now we need to be careful to exercise proper discernment when we take prophecies given to Israel and apply them to the church. However, this prophecy was directed at complacent women and the people of God are often spoken of in the context of the female half of the covenant relationship. God complained to Israel that they had broken his covenant though he was a husband to them. And Paul in Ephesians exhorts husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Paul tells us in Romans 11 that Gentile believers, and most of us here are Gentile believers, uh, but not all of us, Gentile believers are like wild olive branches grafted into the vine. We therefore do share in God's promises made through the prophets. But unlike the advocates of replacement theology, we also need to pay careful heed to the criticisms and warnings as well. Now I think I've mentioned before that in the late 19th century and the early 20th centuries, that in this country over 90% of the population regularly attended church. Great buildings were made with upstairs balconies to accommodate all the people. But that does not mean they were all Christians and that everything was wonderful and perfect. In fact, far from it. 
And through the prophet Isaiah, God once described his people as the people who honour him with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And when you read the sermons of some of the great men of God in that day, the sermons of men like Bishop J.C. Ryle, you will see that he gave stern warnings of complacency about the attitude of the people to the word of God. Now sadly those warnings went largely unheeded and today we're increasingly living with the consequences. See the fields where we sow the seed of the word of God are indeed overgrown with thorns and briars. When evangelists take the word of God into the streets, the towns, the public arenas, they are cut and they're bruised and increasingly arrested by the police. And those grand buildings intended as places of prayer, praise and worship to the one true God and many have now been abandoned and are now used as temples and mosques, places of business and commerce, marketplaces and used as places of ungodly entertainment. And even those grand buildings that are still in the hands of people who call themselves Christians, do we not see that uh, many in these places no longer regard the Bible as the authoritative word of God and practices are becoming more pagan and less godly? So how do we respond? Now there's nothing here about pointing an accusing finger. God calls the complacent daughters, the women who are at ease, to humble themselves and mourn. However, this state will not continue indefinitely. And verses 15 to 20 come as welcome relief. They speak of a time of great revival when the Spirit is poured out from on high. And what a transformation there will be. The wilderness... A dry, barren, lifeless place where few living things survive, where the climate is harsh and there's little water and a meagre food supply. Life is hard and wearing. The wilderness will be completely transformed into a fertile field. It will be a place where new life springs forth. There will be an overwhelming abundance of refreshing water and growth. The fertile field will become as a forest and it seems that the rest of God's creation know how to rejoice even when his people forget. Life will become pleasant, a pleasure with food aplenty. There will be joy and gladness, peace and security. The king will rule in righteousness. There will be justice, law and order, respect, gentleness and a desire to want what is best for your neighbour. There will be peace between God and man. And this chapter concludes by stating, blessed are, you who sow, blessed are you who sow. In other words, righteous service will be actively worked out, a living and practical reality that will affect the way we treat our animals. Yeah. When will this be? Now I do not believe these verses are describing a great revival prior to our Lord's return. I believe what we've just read is coincidental and consequential upon his return. I believe the great outpouring of the Spirit will begin in Israel and spread outwards worldwide. I believe we are reading the fulfilment of the word of God that God gave through the prophet Zechariah when he said, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look upon me whom they pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. When the Lord returns and the Spirit is poured out on the people of Israel, sorry, when, when the Lord returns and the Spirit is poured out, 
The people of Israel will recognise Jesus as the promised Messiah, their Passover lamb, who died for the sins of the world, and they will mourn. But later their mourning will turn to joy. And I believe that uh, then this great revival will then spread out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And I believe this is what Paul was referring to in Romans 11 when he said, Have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness for if by being cast away is, re- is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? When Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago, this was the good news that he preached. He preached the good news of the kingdom. Not only did he preach it, he demonstrated it. In Acts 10 and 38, Luke wrote about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good. Now remember the meaning of that word good. Good means just as God intended. So what was the good that Jesus went about doing? See, as a consequence of Adam's rebellion, sin entered the world and death through sin. Not only death, but disease, decay, deafness, blindness... The ground was cursed and the climate changed adversely. And from the time that he was baptised, the good that Jesus went about doing was to reverse the effects of this fallen world. He cured disease. He made the the lame walk again. He opened the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. He fed the hungry and satisfied the thirsty. He commanded the wind and the waves to cease. He even raised the dead. In other words, he demonstrated that he had the ability to restore this fallen world to its former glory, to make it good again as God intended, and that he would do so by paying the penalty of sin. The good that he went about doing in his first coming was only the first fruits, an indication of what was to come more fully in his second, and what was limited in local in his first coming would become worldwide in his second. And this is why Paul emphasised Jesus as the seed of David whenever he preached the good news of the gospel. However, it will not be good news for everyone, particularly when we consider the question of why he's returning to this earth. See, one of the reasons the Bible gives for his second coming is is to defeat his enemies. As Paul writes, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now some of those enemies are referred to in chapter 33. See, the good news of his second coming will not be good news for the plunderers or destroyers, those who spoil or ruin things for others, the cruel, the aggressive, the selfish, those who exalt themselves by putting others down, who show no respect for his environment. Neither will it be good news for the treacherous, the disloyal, the turncoat, the unfaithful, who profess to love you, who are outwardly friendly, who fake sincerity, but behind your back speak evil and slander you. Verse 1 tells us that they will get what is coming to them. What they have done to others will be done to them. Now just as the second coming will not be good news for the destroyer and the treacherous, neither will will it be good news for those in the armies of the world that gather around Jerusalem to, to attack and destroy Israel prior to his return. 
See, the second coming will be a time of war and conflict. The nations gathered to make war on Israel will be dispersed and the destruction of them will be total. To illustrate this, we are given a lesson from nature. Just as the caterpillar and the locust strip everything completely bare, so will be the destruction of those armies. This, this conflict will also have a destructive effect on the land. Verse 9 describes how the earth mourns, how Lebanon is shamed and shriveled, and the plains of Sharon will become like a wilderness, and the fruit produced in Bashan and Carmel would be adversely affected. And when the Lord returns, he will be seen as a consuming fire, striking fear into sinners and hypocrites, and they will cry out in protest, Who among us can live with this consuming fire? Isaiah answers the question directly in verse 15. But these are the same people who are referred to in verses 2 and 6. Who shall stand? The humble. For only the truly humble, who know what they have been forgiven, will call upon the Lord to be gracious to them. They are those, the humble are those who know that they can achieve nothing in and of themselves. So they cry out to him every morning to be their strength, to be their wisdom, their knowledge and their salvation. The humble who out of reverent fear seek the Lord daily to understand and to perform his will and purpose. The humble are those who walk in obedience, who guard their tongue from speaking evil and are careful to say what is right, true and edifying. Those who walk honestly, despising oppression and staunchly refusing dishonest gain or bribery. The humble are those who carefully control what they see and hear, avoiding violence, evil and bloodshed. And I think we need to think very carefully about this last point because I shudder to think about the violent and evil content of all the films and TV programmes that I've watched over the years. Recent research in America reveals that the, an average American 18-year-old brought up on a diet of TV and films have witnessed no fewer than 200,000 acts of violence, 40,000 of which are murder. Now, if we combine that with all the unrestrained profanity, the acts of fornication and illicit adulterous affairs, and increasing examples of lewd acts of a homosexual nature, then you begin to realise that as Christians we need to exercise considerable discernment and restraint with what comes into our homes through the airwaves. The warning is clearly there in the scriptures. Verses 16 to 24 reveal several promises made to the humble servants of the king. Their physical needs will be met. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. They will see the king, some from nearby, some from a land far off. They will enjoy security. His place of defence will be the fortress of the rocks. And he will no longer experience defeat by his enemies. You will not see a fierce people, a people of obscure speech beyond perception. You see, when Judah and Israel were continually disobedient, as I said before, God would raise up enemies like Assyria and Babylon to take over their land and lead them into ex exile. And when they came under the authority of fierce people, whose language they did not understand, this was a sign of God's judgment against them for their continual disobedience. And the promise here is that God's humble servants would never again experience his judgment. 
His humble servants have promised that they will see Jerusalem. And and Jerusalem will be a place where they could know rest and quiet assurance. And Jerusalem is described as a tabernacle, a tent. It will have the outward appearance of vulnerability and and temporary dwelling. However, when the king is present, it will in fact be permanent and secure. Verse 21 states that there the Lord will be for us. For us and not against us. He loves us. He wants what's best for us. And when God gave the law through Moses, its purpose as a repeated refrain through Deuteronomy is, was that it might go well for you. When verse 21 continues, a place of broad rivers and streams, and I've read it several times, it's not abundantly clear whether that's referring to Jerusalem or to the Lord himself. And if we interpret it as referring to the Lord, it very much brings to mind what Tom spoke about a year or two back in the prelapsarian world with the four rivers symbolising the life-giving abundance of the Holy Spirit. Now most towns and cities, I have a geography lesson now, most towns and cities in the world are built beside rivers since people need water to live. Um, People need water to live and flourish, water for drinking, water for washing, water for growing crops. And rivers also make very effective defensive barriers against attack. Now, I've never been to Jerusalem, but if I understand correctly, Jerusalem is built on the top of of a hill. It doesn't have rivers. In fact, its water is supplied from underground sources. Now, a place of broad rivers and wide canals is therefore hardly an apt description. So if these verses are describing Jerusalem, it will need to undergo some pretty major geographical changes. Now in fact, this is precisely what the prophet Zechariah prophesied concerning our Lord's return. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north, and half of it to the south. And in that day, it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, half of them towards the western sea. Now the very last verse of chapter 33 indicates that during the millennial reign, people will enjoy much improved health. Other passages in Isaiah indicate that people will live to much greater ages, that death in young children will become a thing of the past and that it will be considered most unusual for anyone not to reach the age of 100 years old. So the millennial of reign will not be a complete restoration to the world as, as it was before the fall, in which there was no death. However, the world will be far closer to it than it is today. And verse 22 tells us three things about the Lord. The Lord is our judge. In other words, in the millennial kingdom, there will still be disputes that require settling. The Lord is our lawgiver. The weak will still need protecting from the strong. And in the millennium, as in all the ages that man has lived, including Eden, obedience to the law is a non-negotiable requirement. Obedience to God's laws is a non-negotiable requirement. And the third thing, the Lord is our king. The failings of all governments of this world, however good and attractive their policies may seem, stem from a lack of power to implement them. But our Lord is King, and he has the power and the authority to effectively implement his good laws. And and that's when we will see 
fully the prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, to be fully answered. However, there will not be universal heartfelt loving obedience. For many, there will be simply outward conformity only. And towards the end of the millennium, Satan, who had been bound and kept from influence in this world, will be released and lead a future rebellion. But that's a topic for another day. Now, learning and hearing about what things, uh, what, uh, what things will be like when the king shall return and reign in righteousness inevitably does cause us to ask, when shall these things be? Well, the good news is that we can enter into his kingdom now. We do not experience it in all its fullness, but we can experience the first fruits. And when a sinner repents, believes and calls upon the name of the Lord for salvation, God sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts. And when he comes, he comes as a king who reigns in righteousness. He comes to defeat enemies, the enemies of sin, self and Satan. And on Tuesday, Kurt reminded us of the importance of having our testimony prepared. And when the king comes into our lives, isn't our testimony that the barren, lifeless wilderness that our lives once were are transformed. We experience new life where good things grow, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy and peace. Isn't our testimony that our, our groaning is turned into rejoicing, that he becomes our strength, our wisdom, our security and our salvation, and he meets all our needs and lovingly disciplines us as his children. When Paul preached the gospel, he not only spoke of Jesus as the one who died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins, he also spoke of Jesus as the seed of David, the king who will reign in righteousness. And this is the gospel that we must preach too. And may we know God's blessing as we do so.